Welcome to The Tea Room. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. In the last few months, research has been published that reveals a new entrant in the long COVID race. A research from California's Cedars-Sinai Medical Centre has found a strong link between long COVID and POTS. That's postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Now, their research lines up quite nicely with Australian research, which is, granted, not yet published, but which has showed 70% of long COVID patients from their cohort had POTS. The bad news is that POTS is characterised by a range of potentially debilitating symptoms beyond tachycardia. So severe fatigue and brain fog are among the most dominant symptoms. The potentially good news is that POTS is, for many people, treatable with lifestyle management and perhaps some drug therapy. But I don't want to oversimplify the topic, so I've asked researcher Murray-Claire Seely to join us in the tea room today. Murray-Claire Seely is a clinical nurse specialist who has almost finished her PhD on POTS and long COVID. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us about POTS? Yes, so POT stands for Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome. It's considered predominantly by people that do know about it to be a nervous system disorder, but it's not very well understood or known in the medical fraternity. POTS is described by one specific symptom, which is both useful and annoying. (laughs) Annoying because as clinicians, we know it's that one symptom of tachycardia is not indicative of the functional decline or the severity of the syndrome in a person, but it is now classified as a diagnostic tool. So it's helpful, I guess, in that way. POTS will be in the 11th iteration of the International Classification of Disease book. So it's it's important for us to use that diagnostic criteria. But we know that people sometimes fall in and out of it and it fluctuates. So I want to preface that before we talk about it. And so that name POTS was coined, but over 30 years, it's become understood that that's just one symptom of a really complex multi-system disorder that is connected to the dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, which of course controls all our unconscious functions, including our hemodynamic status. Now you've been working as a clinical nurse specialist for a couple of decades and you're now doing your PhD on POTS and long COVID. What's the link? So I should probably just preface that with most of my work as a nurse has been actually in the emergency medicine field, although I had personal experience of POTS post-virus from well over two decades ago and so had been following the research and was well up on what was happening with it and it was really a late life decision to (laughs) embrace the challenge of POTS. POTS is predominantly onset post-virally as it happened with me, it it is very difficult to determine how many people get it from viruses and other stressors, but certainly in our clinic, at least 40% of our patients, we can directly uh, attribute it to a post-viral insult. So usually Epstein-Barr virus is the most common that we see. Sometimes people can get POTS from other things such as concussions and surgeries, but they're a lot less frequent. And then, of course, we have a whole bunch of people who really don't exactly know what the onset was. And because the diagnostic journey is such a delayed one, it can be some years between the onset of their symptoms and diagnosis. So that's often a bit difficult to determine what the stressor was. 
But in terms of long COVID or or COVID-19 infection, it seems that the COVID-19 or the SARS COVID virus is very efficient at causing quite a strong immune reaction. And you'll see in the literature lots of discussion around cytokine storms in the acute phase and ongoing inflammatory alterations to the immune system. And the virus seems particularly good at causing both acute and chronic autonomic disturbances, and that's been well documented now in the literature. And I would specifically say probably in the last month what those working in the autonomic nervous system field have understood for the last three years is coming to light in the studies and the literature that's now coming out with quite a bit of force in terms of the fact that long COVID and acute COVID can cause these autonomic disturbances that result in a whole plethora of multi-system symptoms, particularly gastrointestinal dysfunction, motility disorders, bladder impairment, and thermoregulatory dysfunction, and particularly the area that we're interested in is the vasomotor dysfunction which essentially means that these patients have a lot of difficulty with venous return when they're upright. They have really poor preload to their heart, and this results in quite strong compensatory mechanisms that cause these really high heart rates, dizziness, presyncope, and the subsequent fatigue and brain fog that results from that. So picking up on the brain fog and fatigue, these seem to be two of the predominantly disabling effects of long COVID for many people. What does POTS have to do with those? How does that work? Yeah, so it's it's very well documented that POTS patients get significant fatigue and in our cohort of hundreds, I had a quick look at our data last night, we hold the Australian POTS registry and there's, you know, well over 500 people registered on that. Fatigue is one of the predominant symptoms. So about 80% of our population have severe fatigue. That's a really, really high fatigue level. You do get the occasional POTS patient who doesn't, and they tend to be younger. They they have quite extreme heart rates, but relatively low fatigue. But fatigue is a really dominant symptom. And so is brain fog. And in fact, brain fog is weak. We routinely ask our patients, what are your three worst symptoms? And brain fog and fatigue would invariably be in the top two. We do understand that there's an actual blood flow issue and particularly hypoperfusion of the brain that's well established in literature. And in fact, we see that on some of the testing that we do in quite severe cases, we might look at brain perfusion and it invariably it's abnormal. We have always assumed that that's a vasopressor response issue in terms of poor preload to the heart, poor vasomotor response results in poor perfusion to the extreme areas of the brain where there's smaller capillaries and less pressure of the of the blood to get there. But we don't know actually whether that's what it is. We need far more research. So when we saw long COVID coming through the clinic, to us it was indistinguishable from what we already were looking at. That is a patient who gets a viral insult sometime within the next month or so they start to develop usually gastrointestinal symptoms first, then they get sometimes the orthostatic symptoms, then the brain fog and the fatigue are usually, you know, associated with that. And we generally put it down to that hypoperfusion problem, but we're not a hundred percent sure on that. So if a doctor has a patient who has long COVID experiencing 
fatigue, the brain fog, and any number of other symptoms. What chance is it that that patient has POTS? Oh, very high. You know, generally we use what we call the compass, which is a composite autonomic symptom score to look at autonomic dysfunction. But fortunately, about a year ago, a Swedish group published what they call the Malmo POTS score, which really looks at the 10 major domains of symptoms in POTS, and that includes fatigue, brain fog, dizziness and presyncope, chest pain, all the things that we see in POTS. If you gave that to someone who's looking after patients with long COVID, they'll just think you're talking about long COVID because it is essentially exactly the same profile that that questionnaire is quite sensitive to picking up POTS and so we're starting to use it in our clinic to, to really kind of try and compare how sensitive it is compared to the compass for us. In terms of managing POTS, there's non-drug therapy, increased water, wearing compression, salt loading, exercise, those sorts of things. In terms of drug therapy, is there much evidence around that at the moment? There's little bits, you know, we've got a few randomised controlled trials around the world that have come out over time. They're always small cohorts because there's never been any funding for these conditions. So, But there is a lot of expert opinion and there's a lot of people that have worked in this space who have really good clinical experience and there's a few international consensus statements from those people that are really helpful. There's a Canadian group that did one as well as I think the American Heart Rhythm Group so there's a few statements out there. I would just say that the salt and water is really important and it can't be overstated how much, you know, these people need a lot of salt and a lot of water to lift their plasma volume. They're, they have relative hypoperfusion. So even if their blood volume isn't low, which it often actually is when we, the research has been done, they've got quite low blood volumes, but also it's displaced. So that does help. And we, even in the initial stages of long COVID, we see people have a relatively good response to that. It invariably isn't enough. And we would say exercise is a long way down the track for these people. It's, we find it, it's not that helpful in the first stages. If you're not treating their blood volume and their cerebral hypoperfusion, it's not that helpful to go get them exercising. Fatigue usually results from that and worsening brain fog. So it is very important to get the compression on them. So what you're saying is that really those non-drug therapies are incredibly helpful and important. Yes. And they should be done at the primary care level. We you know, there's not many specialists out there that deal with this in Australia and those that do now mostly have closed their books or their waiting lists are over a year long. So these people can be helped in the primary care area and it, and it's better if they are that we trial all the, you know, wearing good medical grade compression now. You can get that in some of the athletic wear out there. That's helpful ankle to waist that keeps some blood pressure support for the thoracic cavity. And that's exactly what these people can be wearing. Obviously, they can't tolerate it that well in, in the summer. And that's another issue. These people need to know what to avoid. You need to avoid heat. You need to avoid hot showers. You need to avoid dehydrating drinks and things like alcohol and too much coffee. So no no alcohol, hot showers or coffee, but you'll look great in your active wear <laughs> in winter. That's right. Exactly right. 
So, yeah, how effective are the lifestyle changes? How long's a piece of string? We see remarkable changes in some people and in others and very little in others. And that is the frustrating thing about working in this space. And I, you know, I regularly am surprised by people that have quite remarkable responses to, for instance, one tablet, one pharmacotherapy that we would use is ibabradine, which is a really specific blocker, really essentially of the funny channel. And so it just works specifically on the heart. It doesn't, shouldn't, in theory, affect much of the autonomic nervous system. But we use it because we see such good response in so many people. And occasionally, you see people who have been unable to work and we recently had a doctor in this situation who hadn't been able to work for some months due to long COVID. He came in, he was extraordinarily fatigued, brain fog, unable to stand, couldn't do surgery anymore. We gave him lifestyle changes. He'd started implementing those off his own back before he came into the clinic. So then we put him on to Ibabradine. I saw him four weeks later and he is not cured, but he is going back to work this week. And it was astounding to see the change in him from that. And we see that. It's not that unusual to see a good response. I would say the majority have a more moderate response, but the more of these things that we can do, such as the lifestyle changes, education around management, and avoiding triggers and putting a little bit of pharmacotherapy in there, all of that adds up to increasing functionality and being able to, you know, do a lot more in their life than what they would otherwise do. You've done a clinical trial already around long COVID and yes, pox, haven't you? Yes, that's right. So we registered a trial very early on, a comparative cohort prospective trial where we enrolled controls, POTS patients and then long COVID patients And we were going to, well, we did look at a range of things. Firstly, the autonomic profile of those patients and the symptom profile of them to see whether we could see any particular differences amongst them. We also did some cognitive testing through the CANTAB, which is used predominantly for research to look at various factors with neurocognition around executive function. And so the first part of that study is... Well, the study is pretty much complete, but the first part of it is analysed and being written up, and that was the autonomic side of it and the symptom profile. And so that showed us pretty much exactly what we thought we would find, and that is there is no difference between the POTS or the long COVID in terms of symptom profile. Now, our POTS patients in the study have had POTS for a lot longer than the COVID patients. So the symptoms were virtually identical. However, the long COVID patients reported the functional impact as being higher, and that's probably because they were in the first stages of what is essentially quite a chronic condition, and it is a life-changing. I cannot overstate how life-changing it can be to these people, you know, people, full-time workers, parents, mothers, fathers, doctors, lawyers, teachers who one day can do everything and the next day can do nothing. So it takes a lot of adjustments. So the one difference that we did see is probably the self-reporting of their own symptoms. But then we did our autonomic testing. So that involves quite complicated hemodynamic beat-to-beat monitoring of autonomic responses to a range of manoeuvres that 
really we want to see the responses to in terms of the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems and there's no difference. What about overseas? Who else is doing this kind of work into long COVID and POTS? Well, there's a lot going on in America. The Mount Sinai over on the East Coast, they did an initial survey using the Compass survey of long COVID patients with nearly 3,000 patients to determine what did the land kind of look like in terms of autonomic dysfunction. And that was one of the first studies that came out to show that the majority had at least symptomology that was consistent with autonomic dysfunction. And now... That's the majority of those 3,000 long COVID patients? Yes, correct. And then there's a few prospective trials that are, again, small, but, you know, around the 70, 80 mark, but they're thorough. And there's Satish Raj, who is at the University of Calgary and well-known cardiologist in this field. His lab is putting out quite a bit of research in this area and they've just published their first trial looking at this, showing a high amount of objective hemodynamic autonomic dysregulation in long COVID. And I'm sure he's got quite a bit more up his sleeve for that plant. There's some on the West Coast too. Vanderbilt's looking at it. Stanford's looking at it. There's quite a few groups in this area who have been in this area for a long time and this now has given them the opportunity. Always the problems with POTS has been it's not always the same trigger, so we're never sure we've been looking at the same mechanism. But now we have this large, very large cohort of a similar mechanism and that gives us a homogenous group to start to really explore. Do you sometimes feel that the medical community isn't listening to this research? I would say 80% of the medical community don't have opportunity to hear this research. I mean, what GP has time to go scrolling through research for these small studies that we all know are there, but if you don't know what you're looking for, then you don't know. GPs are incredibly busy. This is, this is why we do the Medical Republic. So give us a list of what a GP could possibly put under the POTS banner. So I think the Malmo tool or the Compass tool, if they had the capability, the Malmo tool is just a 10-question tool and it can give them a pretty instant understanding of the broad spread of their symptoms and go, okay, we've got a heads up, this may be POTS. Number one, they are typically female, about 80 to 90%, but guys do get this. One of the real flags is, and this is a whole other area that we could talk about another day, but there's a predisposition for people with hypermobility for post-viral syndromes and in particular autonomic dysfunctional POTS. So you get these young women in, it just might be a sudden onset of I'm nauseous every morning. So autonomic symptoms are typically worse in the morning. They might have change of bowel habits, constipation or diarrhea. They typically have upper gastric symptoms, so bloating, early satiety, and new onset reflux. They're all pretty good signs in a young female. Typically, the bulk of them will be under the age of 50. Particularly if you're seeing long COVID patients and they're complaining of this, that's your first sign of autonomic nervous system dysfunction is gut dysfunction. And it's new onset migraine or new onset headaches that that speaks to the orthostatic hypoperfusion of the brain concentration issues and fatigue and then you can go okay let's have a look at what you like when we lay you down stand up even if you can only do it for five minutes in your clinic that's possibly worth it so in a nutshell could you take us through the assessment for pots that you would do in your clinic 
So the criteria is very simple. A lot of people think and a lot of doctors have been told that a tilt table is required for diagnosis and that is not the case. And in fact, tilt tables can be quite harmful to patients with severe hyperperfusion of the brain. It does onset syncope in a lot of people and it can actually lead to asystole in some people that's not unknown. And it actually gives a lot of false positives. So we don't advise tilt tables. So the most important one and the easiest one for GPs to do would be to have the patient rested and recumbent for at least five minutes. So if you've got a practice nurse, that would be the ideal way to do this. Have them lay rested, get a baseline blood pressure and pulse, and then have them stand and stand still with a slight lean either against a wall or against a bed and make sure that they're not fidgeting and then take minutely blood pressure and heart rate recordings and do that for 10 minutes. And then we look to make sure that there's no orthostatic hypotension in the first three minutes. Sometimes they can develop late orthostatic hypotension and that still can be considered POTS. But in the first three minutes, we would consider that a true orthostatic hypotension. And we look for a delta heart rate rise of greater than 30 beats for a true POTS diagnosis, but certainly for suspicion of POTS greater than 20 beats and the symptoms that come with that. And I should say one of the objective symptoms you can look for is the actual mottling of the blood pooling, which we call dependent acrocyanosis. So you see their feet and hands may go purple or red or mottled colour, and that's usually a sign of that poor vasomotor response. So if they're symptomatic, they have a heart rate rise greater than the 20, technically 30, but anywhere above 20 we would be suspicious, then we would say, yes, this person looks like they've got autonomic dysfunction. And, and then what's then, the next step? So the next step would be, as we said, ruling out anything else that could be causing that. Diabetes, of course, can cause autonomic dysfunction. Usually in this cohort you would have been well aware of it by now, but it would be sensible to do your routine testing of thyroid, glucose and iron levels and correcting anything that needed correcting if they're anemic and so on, then we've got to make sure that's corrected. In the absence of that, we would start with lifestyle measures, so advising them and educating them about the fact that this is likely to be a POTS or an autonomic nervous system dysfunction. It's fluctuating and it may be transitory in people, so it's not it, not unusual, not common, but not unusual for some patients to actually just completely move out of this after some time. So if they're in the acute phase of, of COVID infection or just after, it may be that all this autonomic dysfunction just settles down. Like other post-virals resolve themselves over time? Correct, correct. Is there anything else that you'd like to add in wrapping up? We just want to put it out there again that this is something that we 100% believe that can be dealt with in the GP domain in terms of identification we understand that it needs some pretty multidisciplinary input and we're here to try and really elevate the need for education across Australia in that space and so we're happy for people to reach out to us in terms of that and the POTS Foundation has a website. It's pretty new and it's under-resourced. We're all just volunteers, but we are starting to put up some resources up on that site. And so hopefully in the next few months, 
GPs will be able to make their way there to make sure so that they can actually get some resources to help them in their clinical management. And in fact, on that site, we actually have at the moment a therapeutic update. And so you can download that and just have a look at the management for your own clinic. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate all your insights on long COVID and POTS. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That was Murray-Claire Seely, clinical nurse, specialist and PhD candidate at the University of Adelaide. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the tea room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.